that said, I am I am implementing at work a way of tracking how fun a game is. <laughs> so, sur- surveys and qualitative, but measurable. <laughs> All right. Uh, so welcome everybody to the MetaCast. Uh, you will hear uh, no Maria today because she's enjoying her vacation <laughs> in Argentina. So uh, shout out to Maria. I hope you're having fun over there. Uh, today I will be hosting the podcast. Uh, you might uh, recognize my voice uh, as Manu. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Navik. And today I have with me Anthony and Tammy, long, um, long-time colleagues and uh, <laughs> and friends in the industry. Uh, do you guys want to say uh, say something? <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay, so yeah, Tammy and I met at Congregate and uh, worked worked together for a, a number of years. And then um, we were just saying it's been about three years since we last talked. But um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to. Uh, having a, yet another intellectual conversation with Tammy, who always has really great insights on <laughs> on the industry. So, um, yeah, she, 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 it's it's a good way to to catch up. It's uh, grab grab a morning coffee. It's not it's not a beer. It's a morning coffee with with friends. Yeah. So yeah, so interesting anecdote uh, for the listeners. Um, while I was back at Zynga, one of the GDC talks that I watched was. Um, the talk that Tammy gave about LTVs while she was still working back at uh, Congregate. And that talk, you know, yeah, very quickly like leveled me up and it was just so much of gold and insight packed into one hour. And uh, and yeah, you know, like getting the opportunity to talk to Tammy was something that <laughs> I was always looking forward to and it finally happened. And then um once I went to Flare Games uh, in Germany, then the other article I read was uh, the one called The Math Behind Idle Games because I was working on an idle game at that point. Um, and that article was written by Anthony, which also like leveled me up. Again, a one-hour experience <laughs> packed with insight. And uh, and yeah, it was really cool to also like get in touch with Anthony somehow. Now we've been working with each other for, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know, more than six months, nine months, I think. Uh, and and then Anthony knew Tammy, and then he connected uh, <laughs> me to her. And now and now we're all here on this podcast, which is great. <laughs> we're all, we are all friends in the in the industry, yeah. and I will I will also shout out to Anthony and a few other folks at Congregate that were encouragement on on sharing learnings and giving talks and really set out. You know, the, yes, go, go, go do that. And like, it's, it's something, you know, if we, if we share our learnings with the industry and with, you know, game developers more broadly, like we all grow as, as a, as an industry. So it's, it was for me also very cool to see like that, that culture of like, Hey, we don't need to like shield our, our, what we're learning. We can actually like talk about it openly and, and, and share it. And that's, that's been like, since since then it's been a very uh kind of key tenant of, of how i like to connect with people and operate just like you know emil greer anthony just folks that I, like encouraged me to to do this 
It's like, yes, let's keep doing this. Let's keep sharing and, and learning together. It's it's actually uh, something that I think the Finnish games industry is also really good at. Uh, and just that that industry, it's I mean, it's most, I guess, mostly concentrated in Helsinki and everyone is kind of like working close to each other and stuff, like multiple game companies in the same building. Uh, and, you know, the the amount of sharing that happens over there or so I've heard is like really high. And the other company, which is also like then connected to Tammy's topic is uh, Space Ape. I remember like an article they put out almost like four or five years back, I think by now, where um, they were talking about uh, the success of that um, that top-down shooter game that they had that did really well. And, uh, and they released this like massive article about, you know, um, what kind of performance that game saw, like what kind of marketing strategies they did, the product insights and things like that. And they kind of ended it, ended it with, you know, this broader takeaway that the industry like should be open about sharing learnings and, you know, um, and just getting like the knowledge out there because then you're kind of just standing on everyone else's shoulders and, you know, reaching newer heights. So, uh, but yeah, talking about Space Ape, we can probably jump into Tammy's topic first. So, um, it looks like that might have been Fastlane. Is that something? Ah, right? Fastlane. That's yeah. the one. That's the one. Yeah, Fastlane. <laughs> quick, quick Google. Yeah, it was one. It was one of the earlier ones. I I want to say. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah this top down bullet hell experience, right? Um, but yeah. Yeah, and I I can I can get us started. Um, so I was I was digging through some old and I'm gonna say old because it was from May and in June, uh, articles and interviews in, in Pocket Gamer and a few other um news outlets and one that really jumped out at me is you know the the title i was like it's it's terrible like the headline is like very flashy of like clickbaity of like <laughs> uh how did beat star survive 24 kill prototypes and still succeeded <laughs> um but it was it was once i read through the interview i think it was like some very interesting points mm. of something that i just think it's like it's a it's an ongoing question and very different teams approach it very differently but it's you know how do you prototype games in a way that you can answer the question of when when do i know a game is fun when do i know that this is an idea that i i should pursue um and i think that we're actually going to talk about it in, in from different angles throughout the whole uh podcast today and what, what was interesting too as i as i was reading this today Supercell, on the other hand, announced that they're ending development for Clash Quest, which in all intents and purposes, like if you've played it or read about it or seen any videos, it's a fun game. So the gameplay in itself is is fun, but sometimes it's not the only, and you know, we're running businesses in, in yeah. a lot of the instances in the gaming industry. So it's not only, is it a fun game, but is it a game that can create a sustainable business yeah um but I, but and, also at like you know, supercell standards so that that's like a on right, a completely right. different like supercell standards of like yeah. yeah successful business is just like <laughs> on on the supercell side supercell uh, successful yeah. business yeah. there you go yeah there you go it's like quality quality and success level in terms yeah. of, of business standards but yeah in in for um space ape beat star has has been able to find that that footing and you know i was one of the people that when it first launched i went super into it i got super addicted and 
also was very skeptical about it being, you know, able to sustain that level mm. um, of engagement and monetize well. So it's been interesting to see it kind of continue to do well and be able to find an audience. Um, but yeah, taking take a step back, just things that jumped out at me from the interview uh, were, you know, first of all, they were having, you know, a bunch of different teams prototypes. So we, you know, they kind of had specialized in this type of, you know, more uh, strategy games. And they had this choice of like, do we continue to get better and better at these types of games in live also or go and explore a bunch of different genres? They decided to go and explore a bunch of different genres. So that's where the, like, a bunch of kill prototypes came from. It's like they were just prototyping a ton um, and eventually realized that that was stretching them too thin. So they created better, you know, more fully fleshed resource teams, prototype, you know, have less prototypes running in parallel, but being able to learn uh, and kind of carry learnings from one prototype to the other as they were going through that process. And originally, BeatStar started as a, as a much more mid-core game. It was like a music ah, okay. RPG type. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, and I think like there's in in Japan, China, there's oh, yeah. there's a little bit more market for that. So yeah. we're trying to kind of go go after that in a in a more kind of Western approach. Uh, and what they found is that people love the rhythm gameplay, and everything else just felt like a distraction. Um, so they eventually decided, okay, let's just focus on the rhythm gameplay and let's make just a rhythm game. Um, which, you know, kind of just going through that journey, the, the two themes that I wanted to explore is, you know, there's, there's one question in the interview that, that asks the team is like, what, what was the point in development when you felt you had something incredible in your hands? And I think it goes back to like, what do you know? Part then of you an, found idea the magic. an idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's fun, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. when do you know you found the magic? Mm. Um, I think it's hard to describe it. I think that when you find it, you know, it's like this yeah. moment, you, <laughs> yeah. you know it. Yeah. Um, and the other one is about reducing complexity, uh, which we can go into a little bit uh, if, if that's interesting. But I'm just curious to hear from your guys' experiences, um, maybe just like sharing some of those moments when you've felt that magic, because I think it's hard to like describe it. Uh, as in like an abstract, but when you when you're going through the process, you find kind of that that moment where like it just clicks. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if you have any anecdotes or experiences where that comes to mind, or where you just like keep trying and like the opposite, right? It's just like you're just not finding it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Anthony has some thoughts yeah. because uh, from Defenders Quest. <laughs> okay. so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and Defenders Quest was a, a decade ago, so it's, I'm a little fuzzy on the specific moments. Um, <laughs> I do remember we went through uh, a number of variants of, um, uh, like I remember the Archer character, we were trying to figure out how to handle the ranges and we had a minimum range and a maximum range. And um, we, we ended up like mm. the first few variants of it, it ended up, not being fun because it was just like super overpowered and didn't make sense. And so we ended up playing around with how to try to um, get the the um, ranges to overlap parts of the uh, of the maze in a way that was really effective. And uh, and it worked out, but that was that was sort of a smaller uh, game mechanic. Um, you know, the the game was 
largely sort of a, a mix of two existing genres and unfortunately just sort of blended well. Um, but I, I have been on sort of the under, other side of that um, with a uh, game I was working on. And it's, I, I think part of the success there for um, Space Ape and, uh, and I think Supercell has kind of talked about this culture of, um, you know, scrapping things and, and celebrating success. And uh, I think they were the ones that uh, whenever they cancel a project, they would have like a champagne toast to it and really kind of celebrate, you know, what they learned from it and try to make it so that it's acceptable. Um, and it, it occurred to me, it's sort of like this um, Marie Kondo approach to game design. Like you, you only keep what sparks joy and you have to be willing to get rid of everything else. And um, mm -hmm. if you haven't built that kind of a culture, it's it's hard to do that. Like you, you get too attached or you kind of flounder around a bit and, um, there was a, a game I was working on and we kept making small changes. Like we feel like it's close, but we kept tweaking and tweaking and you never really get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things that we had to start embracing was that, um, you know, if it doesn't feel right, you need a big change. Um, you know, if not going to a fully different genre, at least like some major difference uh, when you're doing your prototyping. Because when you do just small changes, like you end up with these looks maxima and um, when you're trying to find that fun, and it's not working, um, and not working can be that mm. it's not fun internally, or it might be that the metrics aren't there, or something. But um, you know, if you're if you're not, if it's just really not working, you have to make a big change. Uh, and that was something that we didn't mm. embrace early enough, and ended up wasting a lot of time, I think, um, on that project. Mm. One one trend that I've uh, seen constantly happen across teams that have you know built successful or not successful, but like fun core gameplays is. Um, just the uh, just the appetite and processes for rapid iteration, like really, really rapid iteration on every prototype. And um, I think in one of the previous uh, roundtables, I told the story of um, uh, of Archero and like how Archero found the magic in its um, in its control systems. Um, uh, I, do, do you guys know the story? Or <laughs> I can give like a short version of it. Um, but yeah, in that rapid iteration process, um, it was actually an accidental innovation that they had where um, you remember Archero, right? You have you just have to like play with one thumb and when yep. you remove the thumb, it's like shooting, otherwise it's moving. Before that, I think they had like a dual button system for moving and shooting. And, uh, and that just created like, for the accessibility point of view, just created a lot of friction, but also just for like, you know, um, to kind of like let the flow state continue in a way. Also, it kind of like created a lot of friction. So then they convert, somehow it ended up getting converted into a one button system with like, you know, uh, you remove your finger and it shoots automatically. And that was the, that was the moment, you know, when the magic was found uh, in that core. And, um, but yeah, again, it was like through rapid iteration that they were able to do it. The other team that, um, I used to work with back at Flare Games, uh, the nonstop night team uh, from, um, again, from Finland. Um, <clears throat> these guys, uh, they had, so of course, like they were a startup, so a small team, but they also had in that small team of, I think it was six to eight people, they had like two different teams also, I believe, where uh, both were working on like two different prototypes and, you know, uh, and then rapid iteration in that. And all of them in like one team in one room, the product, design guy says, ah, we should try this. They had like this, you know, super coder. Uh, Wilpu was the name, I think. And 
uh and he would like instantly implement it they would test it and you know and no, none of like you know none of the whole um oh it should like look good and they would just like test it with like boxes and things like that but um but they instantly got the feedback okay are we getting close to the magic or are we moving far- farther away from it and you know and uh yeah basically tripping and picking themselves up and then continuously like moving forward and upward so that's yeah that's one trend i've seen constantly across you know uh game teams that have been able to find the fun uh, essentially but um i i kind of also um this is a slightly different point but to your question tammy about like how do you know when you kind of uh, found it and uh, i think about it in like three um like three gates that need to get passed so the first gate is um like through the rapid iteration and everything you kind of do all that your process is set up for all that but the first gate is your own team should be like super excited about it because if they're not excited about it then you can forget about like you know the future of the game once they are excited then you get to the second gate which is kind of like the okay is it like the broader public or at least like our target audience kind of you know um excited about it and you can do like you know some small marketing tests and what not and kind of uh, validate that but then the third gate is okay like the real you know scale the scale gate like okay let's like go outside of the target audience a little bit you know uh, it, would this be like a sustainable business you know uh, is it that fun yeah cuz cuz you you can end up with um with a game that it's it for all intents and purposes super fun really like but it's super niche too right and you know yeah yeah depending on the team that's okay it de- it really depends yeah, on your exactly. on your goals and goals, do you want to yeah, reach exactly. like a broader audience or do you want to keep a niche if you want to keep a niche that's that's also okay that's totally okay exactly so so yeah again yeah aligning you know with the goals and stuff but um but yeah, i guess that um i guess my gate thinking is more maybe for like the massive free to play ones then you know for uh for the more niche indie games it probably doesn't apply like that um but um but yeah, I guess yeah that's how that's how I kind of think about it yeah i think um i mean you're you're definitely right about the the team gate of like the, the team needs to be interested in and excited about it um i remember uh, at congregate at one point um emily who was the ceo uh so she looked around the office and saw about half of the employees had adventure capitalists like running on the you know window on the side um which we hadn't we weren't developing but we later started um decided to to publish um but it was just a really good indicator that people who weren't you know if you have if your team is playing it when they're not working on it that's a really mm-hmm. good indicator um because it's it's very easy to get you know, bored of a game that you're working on so if it's uh yep. if like after hours they're playing against each other or something that's uh, a great indicator. Yeah, and that yeah. that was that was one of the moments that kind of it's always for me it's like it, it just tells you it's like oh this is this was like there was something fun about it because yeah, you would see people playing it uh you would hear people like all of a sudden resetting and you just hear like somewhere in the office going like click 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 um so you know, like <laughs> getting everything like back up uh and you you you'd also people see like you'd see people compete even though it was like you know not a social game but it became a social game within the office like how many angels do you have oh i'm in the billions oh i'm in the trillions and just like mm. 
kind of like this this type competition just yeah none of it was work it was just you know you learn about the game from work but people mm. were just enjoying it um and i think i yeah that's like probably like one of the best indicators uh for me as well is just the team is excited about the game i've been mm. in situations where the team is not excited about the game and it becomes much more of like a task list of like well tell me what to build mm. And we will build it. Um, and for me, that that starts becoming just just a red flag. Um, if, yeah. if the team, like it doesn't matter what role you have in a team, if you don't you don't really care about what you're building, if you don't have kind of these moments of like, oh, I really want to play the the game, or oh, you know, I really want to make this work really well for the game. You know, maybe you're worrying about server loads, but you're excited about like, it's like, oh my, like the game that we're building could have like all of these players and got to make sure that, you know, we can have all of these concurrent yeah. players. Like you're excited yeah. about your game, right? Because you're thinking about it in, in those terms. Um, so for me, like after being in like a couple of situations where, you know, on paper, a game that should have done well. Game team was not excited about it. Um, it became more of a checklist. The game did not do well because it becomes that that checklist. And there's like not you can't find that magic if if you're not excited about the game. I think I think like that is and that's one of like those uh, not not tangible things about game development especially like being in a product analytics type role, like it's hard to advocate for like, let's just find like the magic, let's just find like the, the spark. Like, yeah. How do we measure that? It's like, well, we, <laughs> we don't always measure everything. That is the first time I've ever heard Tammy say that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. You, um. that, that said, I am I am implementing at work a way of tracking how fun a game is. <laughs> so, sur surveys and qualitative, but measurable, measurable. So let's just put it out there nice. that that I am trying to measure it. <laughs> Do you guys have uh, any interesting anecdotes like from some of the early games that you worked on, you know, moments where you like realized that you like found the fun? So back at, at Zynga, uh, we were working on one of the versions of, of Farmville 3 mobile, you know, mm. that, that didn't get launched. Uh, but there was, oh, was, was it, was it country escape or after that? Oh, uh, yeah. after that, um, okay. well, uh, it, it wouldn't have launched after country escape. It started mm -hmm. developing before country escape. Um, right. but one of, one of the cool moments with that game was the, and back to like, kind of like almost these moments where it's like, you're not expecting like innovation to come in something as simple as controls. Uh, you know, it was back in 2013. We're still discovering a lot of like, how do you play on, on mobile? How do you control things on mobile, right? Like we were exploring mm. a lot of, of those questions just as an industry. 
Um, mm-hmm. And one idea that um, one of the, the designers or I think it was like the creative director had was test, um, you know, instead of, um, what is it? It's, it's uh, landscape to portrait mode for a game that, you know, originally you'd expect it to be landscape um, hmm. so that you could play it with one hand on the go. And oh, with man. that, it was like, oh, but now... The, the tech con- team must have, like, flipped their tables. Right? <laughs> right? It's like, now we have to do everything <laughs> with this. Uh, <laughs> but the, the really cool thing about it is, like, once you get to that, um, like, trying to play like that, it was like, oh, but now we need to think about, like, how, how do you interact with the game? It's not only about, mm. like, how you hold the phone, but it's also how you interact with the game. And the the, the piece that I just loved so much... Um, was how we ended up doing uh, planting, harvesting, watering, and kind of those controls. And it was just like a sing- single tap. Mm. But it just, the way it felt, it was just like so tactile, so interactive, and it felt so good the way that we were kind of exploring it. That was like, it's one of those things where I'm like, man, I'm just so, so sad. I never saw the... Uh, uh, an audience and and people got to feel it because it was it just felt so good and you know it's part of like what yeah. makes those games very fulfilling for for people is just being able to you know i i planted i see this thing grow and then it's like my reward and like mm-hmm. making that very tactile was it, it was one of those moments where it's like yeah the the progression metagame it's all very like clear and understandable but it was just like something in how you interact with you know your mm. farm that just made it feel really good yeah I, yeah i do remember um a moment that um it's uh, i guess kind of the opposite or uh so you talked about the, the multiple gates and um we were working on a prototype of a game and uh um had to get a version out for gdc i think and so we sort of we only had one character in the game um, there were one, one character modeled, but it was supposed to be a multi-character game. And so we decided to make a whole bunch of clones of this character in different, um, like wearing different colored shirts. And the writer that we had um, wrote this script for this like clone interaction that uh, we thought was hilarious. Like everyone in the team loved it. It was all of these like kind of clever jokes and puns and everything. And uh, and then we started doing play tests on it and using like uh, play test clouds so we could watch re- the reactions of people as they were playing it. And every person was just deadpan. Like we'd have like one person crack a smile. Most people didn't even realize they were jokes. They were confused. Like it just Man, totally humor flat. in game is like games is like really hard. Humor in it, games. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, so <laughs> it was one of these where we, we we passed the first gate, but the second gate did not work. Um, and I think it ended up that like mm-hmm. a lot of jokes were really for. Like if you're a game designer or if you're really like into the games, like you get a lot of these jokes, but they were too inside. And so once we mm. put them out in front of an mm. audience, it became clear that this was just not the, it, I'm sure it would have had a, a great mm. niche following that would have really enjoyed it, but um, was not yeah. going to work for a, uh, a widespread game. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a similar example. Uh, again, back at Flare Games, um, we were, there was, there's this one game which I think right now is uh, published by Jam City called World War Do. And when Flare Games was still like a publishing unit, you know, this one was in the pipeline. And I remember we were having like, I think it was like a Christmas party or something like that. And um, 
basically the whole office you know everyone's having drinks enjoying the music and then suddenly like you know someone says hey do you guys want to play a round of world war 2 and he collected like two three people and they started sitting on the i mean they sat at the table and they started playing and then instantly you could hear like you know all these ah oh, man i all, it, it's kind of like a it was um it's kind of like a little bit of a clash royale experience but um with with a pinch of uh, moba in it uh but uh but basically you know you have like your set of characters you need to like place them on on uh, on the terrain and they go and attack the enemy and as soon as you like kill the base of the enemy you kind of win right so it was evoking all these emotions between those like three people and then it started attracting like a bigger and bigger crowd and at one point pretty much like half the party had moved to the balcony with like it was raining outside they moved to the balcony they they took like their you know extension cords and everything kept it under the umbrella so that it doesn't get wet and everybody's playing world war 2 over there that was uh, i mean basically it passed the first gate i mean it just didn't pass it it like smashed through it the gate was like you know just not there <laughs> but uh, but then yeah the second gate that was kind of the point where you know where more questions started to rise because um in a pvp game when you actually have the person sitting next to you and you're playing it's a f- completely different experience versus you know someone sitting in i don't know india and playing against me so you know uh and that that was the magic but it wasn't there <laughs> in an online setting and you know uh so that that was like a very very interesting learning uh but yeah i think now that it got published by jam city and stuff i guess they found a different magic but um but yeah anyway uh shall we move on to the next topic which is uh, slightly connected to this one um so yeah so that would be uh, i i can introduce it um there is um there's one new research paper that's kind of been uh, doing the rounds which is on game a new theory in game design psychology um as we all know like okay like some of the famous theories are probably the most well known is sdt or uh, self determination theory um but um this person i'm going to going to try to say his name just a sec <clears throat> his name is sebastian detterding um and he put out a tweet about you know this new paper that he did uh, and it's on the name of the theory is called predictive processing which is an up and coming theory in the psychology field and um he wanted to apply the theory to games uh, because he felt that the current um the current game design psychology theories that exist out there is giving a slightly incomplete view of things and some edge cases are not kind of captured in the current setup of things so <clears throat> i'll probably um just to kind of introduce what all of this is um i'll i'll just kind of read through you know um the abstract of this paper and we'll put the link to the uh, paper in the show notes um so he starts with <clears throat> why why do we seek out and enjoy uncertain success in playing games game designers and researchers suggest that games whose challenges match player skills afford engaging experiences of achievement competence and or effectiveness of doing well yet 
current models struggle to explain <clears throat> why such balance challenges best afford these experiences and do not straightforwardly account for the high appeal of high and low challenge game genres like idol and souls like games so in in more so the paper is like pretty it, it's pretty technical language i think but in more like simple you know simple terms basically what he's trying to say is <clears throat> like zoom out like in life um you know generally people don't like a lot of uncertainty but in games they do <laughs> and uh, and existing existing uh, game design uh, psychology theories like self determination theory would say that to achieve like the best retention you need to have a balanced game experience um that is reducing the uncertainty in a game at fixed amount of uh, at fixed points um but also like uh, also introduces new uncertainty into the game at fixed points so that you can basically maximize retention that kind of in a pvp setting that would result in a 50% win rate right but you also have idle games on one end of the spectrum which is basically like a 100% win rate and on the other end of the spectrum you have like the souls like games like elden ring which is like a 10% win rate and those are like not fitting this you know uh the general understanding of how you're supposed to like balance a game and you know it would like result in uh maximizing retention so how do you kind of explain that and he basically said if these two cases exist then you know existing game design psychology is incomplete and that's why he wanted to kind of introduce this idea of uh predictive uh processing so <clears throat> the overall um again this is just for context you know for everybody but the overall takeaway of um, this theory is that games the reason people play games is so that they can reduce uncertainty in that gaming experience the reduction of that uncertainty can happen at different rates for different games but um as long as that reduction of uncertainty is happening and players feel like they have control of reducing that uncertainty and they will see success at some point then you know they will stay so um the faster they are kind of able to reduce the uncertainty the happier they are the slower they are able to reduce the uncertainty um the more unhappy they are and um and that kind of gets them onto this hedonic treadmill and kind of keeps them retained um in in the game so <clears throat> so so yeah so how does all of this kind of like connect back to you know explaining explaining the three cases so basically on one end of the spectrum you have idle games then you have well balanced games and then you have these souls like games right and um so for well balanced games um again the paper is like pretty technical so like correct me you guys can correct me if my interpretation of it is wrong but for well balanced games the the overall takeaway is that it basically gets like a puzzle game like a match 3 game you know it'll in, it'll start off with introducing you introducing to you the basic puzzle there's a lot of uncertainty at that point about how to solve that puzzle but since it's basic you kind of uh, solve it quickly the uncertainty uncertainty is gone and then you move to the next level you kind of feel that success 
But in the next level, a new mechanic gets introduced, which creates more uncertainty. And then you want to kind of reduce that uncertainty. And then you go to the next level. Then maybe the level design changes, maybe some other variable changes. And, you know, it's this constant loop between, okay, I removed some uncertainty, uncertainty, but now I now the game designer introduced some uh, some back into it. And then you kind of layer all of that on with like progression mechanics and such. And it kind of creates uh, a solid retention curve for puzzle games. And as we know, like, you know, the key thing about puzzle games across Candy Crush or I don't know, Gardenscapes or whatever, whatever, like level design, level completion rates, that's all super key. But <clears throat> what's the psychology driving all of that? The gamer psychology and... Um, this would this would basically kind of explain that gamer psychology that's driving it. So case two is idle games and um, interesting anecdote. Uh, when um, <laughs> when I was reading the paper, uh, Anthony's article on the math of idle games was actually <laughs> referenced in this paper to explain uh, explain the theory, which is super awesome. Um, so idle games, um, the case over there is you know. Um, um, so for like in the previous example, puzzle games would have like this, I don't know, 40, 50, 60% win rate. Idle games have close to a 100% win rate. So where is really the uncertainty over there? How does this theory like fit for idle games? And the key over there, uh, at least my takeaway from the paper was the key over there is there is reliable progress. So people kind of get used to progressing, but then the uncertainty really more lies in how high is the ceiling of optimization over here? And um, yeah, so you yeah, want to say, say something? Um, I think part of it also is, um, so there's there's the reduction of uncertainty. And then um, I think predictive processing kind of goes a little farther even in saying that it's the, we're going to start doing like integrals now. It's the um, doing better. So it's doing better than expected. So you're expecting to reduce mm -hmm. uncertainty. And if you undo, reduce uncertainty at a faster rate than you were expecting to reduce, then that generates yeah. like a, a positive effect where it, um, you know, it's, and so like in an idle game, you're expecting a certain amount of growth and then you'll get some big um, uh, upgrade or you'll do a reset and all of a sudden your growth expectation, it goes higher than that. And so, and that's where like, it really starts to feel good because you were expecting a certain yeah. rate and it's it's suddenly higher um and so uh it's uh, that was kind of like the extra thing and i'm still trying to wrap my head around the um the you know acceleration of or accelerating the deceleration of um uh uncertainty i guess um uh, yeah but uh yeah yeah it's um so it's like yeah it was specifically that i think was the the extra bit yep. that that they were putting in there um, that yep. still kind of that still works in idle games, where um, as you were saying, the, uh, the the other model didn't work as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think that they um, call it um, kind of the good feeling of doing better than expected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That that really caught my attention because I think that really just thinking about kind of that framing of of it feels good to do better than expected you can mm -hmm. just categorize like so many games, like pretty much that's what we're trying to do, right? It's like every game will have, every every game that does well will have some level of of that experience for the player of, you know, you're, you're having some progress and then you do 
something where you do better than expected um or you know you see accelerated growth like there's like just like this this acceleration on what you're doing and that in itself feels good and then you kind of yeah. repeat repeat that cycle yeah yeah exactly so but yeah i, I think i think the way you explained the idle game thing that yeah that basically like covers that case um and then the final case is the souls like games right which is on the more 10% win rate side of the spectrum now naturally like one would expect i mean i'm losing i'm losing like 10 times in a row you know why the hell should i keep playing this game but um i think uh, so so yeah the point he makes is there's obviously like a big factor of um, the kind of pre-marketing and the expectation setting of the game that happens before players actually get into it players already know the kind of environment they're getting into but let's let's take a person who has not been exposed to any of that marketing and you know downloads a souls like game for the first time and he's there i think <clears throat> i think what happens over there uh, in those cases um, and in support of this theory is elden ring also like just throws you into the game without really telling you anything right and and then when you like you kind of have to figure it all out by yourself there might be clues and all here and there which they've you know uh, programmed into the game but there isn't like a full fledged you know handheld on the rails tutorial experience or anything that and then okay players are like okay you know cool let me let me go into the open world and that basically happened with me and then i got like hammered by the the first npc that i saw uh but what happened at that point was like my my expectations got like set very low therefore when i disc- therefore the chance of me discovering something and the game is designed in such a way that you the uh, that you are enabled to discover things the chance of me discovering something increased my uh increased my chance of seeing a success so even though i kept losing my belief in that i will be successful eventually kind of kept pushing me to you know retain and continue to play and kind of continue to remove that uncertainty because i kept discovering new mechanics new styles of fighting um i don't know hiding behind a tree or whatever you know try, basically using the environment to my uh, advantage and things and um so that's basically what he calls as like temporary failure but there could be a point where temporary failure reaches perpetual failure and that's when you lose your you lose hope essentially if you have lost hope that you can like win the game then then you will basically turn you know so and that that's uh, that's kind of his point um <laughs> but yeah super interesting um paper and um i guess yeah like you know question first question to you guys like what what are your <laughs> kind of reflections on this uh, and maybe maybe there could be uh, some other questions after that i i have to i have to poke a little bit of fun here in that Um so as we'll see from my topic it was this is a cool genre of games let's talk about it and Tammy sends this short interview and Munyu sends a 42 page 12,000 word <laughs> complex Highly psychological technical. paper to read through so it was uh, um so it's not about that yeah, and, uh, <laughs> Um yeah no, I, no, I, no, I, I absolutely, really... absolutely love it too. I'm like, "Oh, yes, let's <laughs> dig into this." <laughs> um 
Yeah, actually, let me let Tammy talk. I, um, so I, uh, I have some thoughts about like Souls-like, but I think it's a little bit parallel to um, maybe the core. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, Tammy, did you have some thoughts on the um, kind of the, the theory behind here or um, kind of its applications? Yeah, I thought it was, it was a very interesting approach. And I, I, I really appreciate it. I was like, oh, I need to think about this even further and just like reflect a little bit more on this and just absorb a lot of it. But what I what I really appreciate about it is that, you know, from from my reflections, it really has two key components, um, the prediction part of it and the uncertainty part of it. Uh, for the uncertainty part of it, it was it was very refreshing and kind of like just thinking about games and, you know, how we interact with with the world in games from a different point of view, usually when we when we think about kind of finding that fun, finding that satisfaction, we're you know, the the um, psychology theories that kind of are most uh, popular are around mastery of skill, which is all about flow, right? It's like finding flow, mastery of skill. And that really doesn't speak to you know what what they're trying to explain, right? It's like these two extremes where there's no skill to master on the idle side. If if you just think about it as like pure skill, um, and there's no like in souls like games, it's like there's no mastery part of the skill. Right? It's like you're just or it, it's incredibly or it's hard. Or like very very slow, right? It's like so hard. It just in in the flow theory one would fall on the boredom side and the other one would fall in like the, I think that, I forget what it is, but it's like frustration, right? It's like total frustration. So mm -hmm. it's like in, in the two quadrants that in theory should never fall. Um, mm -hmm. So thinking about, you know, this part of uncertainty, I think it really, it focuses on mastering. It does talk about mastering, but uncertainty, not mastery of skill, which was mm -hmm. a very interesting vector to introduce in how we think about games for me it's you know we are trying to master something because it it does talk about kind of like those same, same ebbs and flows of you know i'm trying to master something um in this case i'm trying to you know reduce uncertainty and in that way i'm trying to master the game by reducing yeah. whatever uncertainty the game is providing so this idea of, you know, I want to do well. Uh, then I, I suddenly do better than expected. That gives me like this, this jolt of joy. Mm -hmm. And now it kind of normalizes in, in kind of like that cycle. Right. And it can go in, in both ways of like, you know, um, that growth idea similar to what Anthony was describing on, on, idle games or it can go on more of like hey we're still doing well but no longer than expected and i think they talk about this a little bit um mm. now i'm willing to go into a, like a harder level by my on my own because now i want to challenge myself to to you know increase my uncertainty like i'm seeking like the, the uncertainty can, can come from like me seeking it it's like okay cool you know, in the in the harder games, that that's what ends up happening, right? It's like you're like, no, 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 I'm gonna like just keep going at this uh, level at this boss uh, until you know I'm like, cool. Now now I'm like at this consistent level. Now let me like I throw myself at like the the, the extra uncertainty 
and that gives that, uh, you know, excitement and joy out of, uh, you know, seeking it and trying to find that mastery. But I really, I really like what it was, uh, you know, thinking about mastering in a very different way. And in, in this case, mastery of uncertainty. And the second piece of, of prediction, it's in, in that regard, you're just like constantly doing that inner calculation of, um, you know, how, how well can I do? And then just making those choices. And it can be big choices or small choices. It can be moment to moment gameplay. Uh, yeah. But yeah, the expectation setting, I think it's, it's crucial. And it, it also puts it into like the prediction. Um, Cause usually I'm like, we talk about it a lot as like aspiration setting. It's like, what are, yeah. what are you building towards? Uh, mm-hmm. But I think we don't always talk as much about, you know, the expectation setting of like, what is the road going to look like to get to that, that, yeah. that place. Right. Um, so yeah. I really, I really appreciated, you know, kind of just adding a little bit different angles to, to how we usually talk about, how do we set these player motivations and how do we, you know, provide game gameplay and game mechanics that speak to these different motivations? Yeah. yeah I, I really I, like the way you put it with, um, yeah, mastering skill and mastering uncertainty. That's, uh, I didn't think about it like that, but I, I think that's like a really nice way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's the for me the the acceleration component was was particularly interesting because it was definitely not something I've thought about. Like I've uh, so I years ago worked in sort of like standardized testing and um, we worked with item response theory and uh, there's so the idea is like if you um, if you have a a number of questions and you're kind of graphing out the uh, where the y axis is the um, the chances of getting the question right in the x-axis is the skill of the person. You'll end up with this like kind of logistic. Um, I wish I could draw it, but um, curve. And uh, you know the the inflection point right in the middle is the the 50-50 chance. Um, if you take the derivative of that, that ends up being the, the top of your upside down U. Uh, and so as a when you're doing like standardized testing, that basically the derivative is represents the information you get. So when there's a 50-50 chance, that's where you find the most out about whether this person knows what they're doing. If you only ask easy questions and everyone gets it right, you've learned nothing. Same for the opposite side. Um, but if you, that, that kind of sweet spot is in the middle. Um, but that's, mm. that's about collecting information. It's not about fun. Um, and so like, you know, if I think back to like, you know, maybe sports or something, um, you know, if you're really good and winning a lot, like, I mean, that's great, but it's also not like a surprise, but the thing everyone talks about are the, the underdogs, like the, you know, the 15 seed in the NCAA tournament that beats a two seed, like that's unexpected. And it's that doing much better than expectation uh, than expected. I think that really like gets us excited. Um, and so uh, I, this, this theory ends up, I think explaining some of that really well um, and, and works in the other way. If you're expected to win and you lose, it's all the more painful. Whereas if you're expecting to lose and you lose, like, it's like, Oh, well that sucks, but you know, it, it doesn't hurt nearly as much. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think it actually works in both directions, but it's that um, kind of that second level of looking at the uh, comparison to what's expected as opposed to just the, the challenge and the, the mastery over time um, that, 
uh, was was particularly interesting. Um, and then I, yeah. like you, Tammy, I need to think over it some more. And I started kind of like going down this rabbit hole of reading you know, uh, articles that were linked. It's, it's a very well-researched uh, paper that has a, a ton of uh, interesting articles in it. Yeah. Um, including anthony's yeah. article <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one uh, one one question i had for you guys <clears throat> especially you know given your time at congregate and adventure capitalist like one problem that um, a lot of idle games face i mean maybe not all of them but a lot of them face is just a poor you know longer term retention curve and <clears throat> um do you think like, you know, the whole upskilling part and like, you know, earning more money or earning more X is all super exciting early on. 60% D1 retention, awesome. But then you have like a, you know, 5% D30 or even lower. Do you think, um, do you think this, do you think that, you know, there's not enough uncertainty that has been introduced uh, into those like long-term idle game experiences, um, which is kind of, you know, a key driver for, um the more poor retention curve um because <clears throat> the mechanic that uh, idle games then you know um dependent on was the prestige mechanic or the reset one and then you're kind of doing the same thing again right and that i mean and then you have then you're basically in a situation where you know it's a hundred percent win rate game and you know exactly what you need to do to kind of get back to you know uh where you used to be um so yeah question is like for that long-term retention curve in idle games and you know if people want to be like improving that um is there can they use this theory in some way to kind of you know um um to kind of improve it um i, I think in some ways yes uh one of the lessons like talking to the adventure capitalist designer um when he first designed it he designed it with a pretty much just steady progression curve and so you were always accelerating at the same rate. Uh, and he found mm -hmm. that people were really, really bored. And so one of the things that he started doing was reducing some of the um, growth and accelerating some of the growth in different spots. So you had a more of a bumpy kind of um, progression curve. And with that sort of contrast where some parts would be slower than expected and you know, you'd be kind of like, oh, this is being a little slow, but then you'd suddenly hit this bump. Um, it, it kind of, it makes sure that your expectations are not uh, constant, I think. And so you're kind of constantly resetting and then you get, you know, occasional disappointments and then occasional highs as well. Um, which is kind of like, you know, a, a boss fight in a game where you, know, you do this big hard battle and then you get through it. And then often the beginning of the next level is relatively easy and you get this a little bit of kind of breeze through it. And then eventually it starts to ramp up again. Um, so that's one component. Uh, some idle games that have really good long-term retention have this sort of unfolding idea of, introducing new mechanics over time, prestige being like a first one, but oftentimes like kind of new um, uh, ways for the different currencies to interact or, you know, it, and it gets a little crazy and, uh, you know, that's good, but it's also very, very uh, content heavy. Um, and you end up developing content that a very, very small percentage of people play. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that percentage of people has been playing for years, but uh, it can be a little hard from a kind of a content treadmill perspective. Um, the other one I think is uh, very generalized um, and not specific to idle games, which is events um, in you know modern mobile games and software as a, you know games as a service. Uh, real time, like live events, um, uh, limited time events are really where a lot of the um, 
kind of the surprise comes in and a lot of the uh, the short term. So, I mean, even idle games, like everything that almost every successful game has some sort of uh, event system that changes up the rules, that provides you with a new challenge, that lets you, you know, your expectations for that limited time event are no longer set. And so you have to kind of like reset them. And, uh, and so I think that's a way that, you know, even once the core game has started to stale a little bit, um, by introducing regular events, you can kind of keep the players having a lot of fun with those. And then eventually it sort of feeds back in and they kind of continue slowly going up the, the core rank. Right. Yeah, and I think just, just to expand a little bit on, on what you were saying, Anthony, of um, the, the bumps and the curves in terms of progression, um, I think would, would it really applies to almost any game and in, in varies on how you how you present it and how you unfold it and like you know is it is it <laughs> towards growth or towards just like mastery of, or wherever you're focusing but it's the the idea of kind of like that that ebb and flow in terms of highs and lows on how you're progressing through the game um i mean you see it in match three games like that's how level design is is done right it's like you're getting harder and harder and harder you know it might take you days, if not weeks, if, if you really don't want to spend on a, on a level to, to pass a level in like a match three game. Uh, but then once you beat that level, like you're going to blast through like a bunch of other levels, right? It's like kind of like this reward for mm. blasting through it. So it's kind of like those ebbs and flows. Um, and the other piece is the, the new puzzles to solve. I think that, you know, it, and it goes back to also like the 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 uncertainty and like trying to to solve and predict something and just kind of what we're really you know presenting to players in a lot of different games in in a, a lot of the games that we're talking about is new puzzles to solve. They might be you mm. know easy, hard, whatever it may be, and that's where like new mechanics work really well. Live ops could work as well. Uh, but only as far as we're presenting a new puzzle. And I think that that's where a lot of teams also fail on the live ops side because they live ops are a lot of work and it's very content heavy. And if you don't introduce like a new puzzle, you're just like reskinning the same puzzle over and over again. Players are going to catch on to that and they're not, you know, they're going to get bored with that too. So it really, I think it, it's those ebbs and flows plus as you're going through those ebbs and flows, presenting new puzzles to solve. If you have new puzzles to solve, that that all of a sudden like engages you. And you know, a new puzzle to solve can look in many different ways depending on the type of game that you're you're building and that you're operating. And you know, some some teams take it to the extreme, like AFK Arena and um, even the township was doing this, where their limited time events are like it's a whole game mechanic on its own, right? It's like, and now we're introducing match three in this game that has nothing to do with match three, but here you go. <laughs> um, but it's, <laughs> yeah. so I think, I think that, it is, that, it, it, it's about that, that solving something new. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that was actually going to be my next question on this because I was also trying to think about like how this theory can be um, misinterpreted by uh, game designers and like this example is perfect you know it's a it's a team rpg or an idle team rpg game 
but then you have like a random like match 3 you know it could be a mini game also um but you have like this random match 3 experience in between is that really the right way to be introducing uncertainty you know into a game experience or not and like one um like something that i've learned as kind of like you know the big cardinal rule in mobile free to play is like you know you don't touch the core game after it's kind of set you know once it's set that's the core game forget about it think about the meta game after that think about events try to find your uncertainty over there you know and um i don't know like do you think this theory questions that at all um or or um or yeah a more broader question is you know um like how 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 can what do you kind of imagine as ways that game designers can misinterpret theory and kind of implement it in the wrong way while i'm thinking on that i have a a, a quick aside which is that um the I, i think there are some like non game applications of this as well um so uh my business partner lars you say um likes to say that a lot of times this sucks actually means this is not what i expected um mm-hmm. and uh you know even in like you know if your job or something like if something's going wrong in a project like you want to let people know and readjust so you can almost work from the di- opposite direction of if you can get people down to that 50/50 um you know you're going to avoid a strong positive or negative response and so like setting expectations uh in general can help um kind of reduce that or you know in other cases like you know uh it's common wisdom is you know set the expectations low and and deliver beyond um because that's always going to give a better response um and uh, mm. you know even this is all kind of intuitive it it does match with this model well where there's certain things that are expected um you know success rates and then if you uh you know if, if you're off of that that's when people notice the signal uh whereas every time it happens normally like no one really notices so it's that however far you are off of the expectation is kind of how strong that signal tends to uh resonate with people i guess yeah um sorry tammy did you want to say something uh no 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 go go for it i'm still i'm still trying to think of like cuz any theory can be mis misinterpreted and, and taken into a wrong direction i'm trying to think of like specific examples where um i could see that yeah. happen but it's like maybe maybe i maybe i can throw out like one idea there um i guess like one way or something that's important to keep in mind um based on my reading from this is that when you are introducing uncertainty into whatever point of the player's life cycle in the game that resolving that uncertainty should still be contributing towards the um towards the key success variable of that game you know uh, of or of that game experience um which would translate into staying close to you know the core game um confines or the meta game design or you know the live ops events and such so <clears throat> i guess yeah that that's how like just to kind of you know put like okay where do you draw the line with the theory like kind of like to think about it like that i guess that's how i'm kind of thinking about it um and you know this afk arena arena doing a match 3 thing sure like you know someone can then say well it gives you rewards that you can reinvest into the core game anyway right but um but i guess yeah that that uncertain the the scale of 
uncertainty removal in that is not really that much you know versus probably like you know something actually happening on the on the campaign map itself like in that core progression line um but yeah i guess that that's how i'm thinking about it but we can move on also we still have one more topic unless tammy has like a last comment <laughs> yeah i'll just i'll just close it with um i think that it all it does tie back to to agency and understanding how much agency i have on you know how i can solve the uncertainty the game is is throwing at me um and i mm-hmm. think that that's how it can potentially like be be misinterpreted it's like let's just like throw stuff at players uh in like some some type of cadence ebbs and flows but if the player still does not understand how to solve for like understand like what are you throwing at them and how to solve for it then you know you're going to land in this place where it's not even just frustrating because you know it's hard but because you don't you don't know why it's hard so i think like it's it's important to just emphasize like the expectation setting and understand like does a player understand what they need to do to overcome this new challenge these this new set of rules or whatever i'm throwing at them right makes sense cool all right so um last topic we have about i think we have about like 10 minutes uh, even if this all is right. a longer episode i don't care it's a great discussion so <laughs> <laughs> uh of course also you guys, i hope you guys have the time for 10 minutes more uh but yeah anthony's topic is next which kind of which yeah beautifully kind of weaves into this whole discussion about you know the one end of the spectrum with idle games having a 100% win rate and stuff and why those game why those special kinds of games are fun why they're actually a successful business but yeah i'll hand it over to you anthony cool. sounds good um and some other time we'll go back and talk about how much i hate elden ring Um okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so um I this topic came out of a uh, sorry I have some notes down here so I keep looking down um this topic came out of my kind of recent obsession with a game called Power Wash Simulator and mm. it is a uh a game where you literally are just playing as a character with a like power water um cleaning gun and they drop you into like a skate park or in front of a really dirty house and the entire point of it is just to clean the whole thing off. Uh and it ends up being this very like <laughs> slow methodical um you know you you've got a whole wall and it's just a square wall with dirt all over it and you're just very slowly like kind of going back and forth blasting all the dirt off and sometimes a couple of things will remain you have to turn up your pressure and shoot those a little bit and then come back down and it's it, I mean it it doesn't sound fun um you know it lacks i guess in terms of that success idea there's uh you know you don't really have a sense of of failure um there are you know a, a couple of frustration points that i can i can talk about but um for the most part it's it kind of creates this sort of like zen it's almost like a meditation kind of thing where you know it's it's just it's a very satisfying you know psychologically to clean things to put them in order um i i think this is part of where like tetris is so popular it's it's, it's all about kind of creating order from chaos um and so you know i'll just sit down and for like an hour straight just i i wish i was this diligent about doing like real life chores um but uh it just like helps me really calm and focus and uh and so it made me think like 
you know is this <laughs> I can a- imagine you know, like my wife like if i'm playing this game you know my wife like uh, standing behind me and say <laughs> why, why don't you act clean the real walls at all why don't you go and <laughs> clean <laughs> clean the car yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's um i i definitely feel that myself um but uh <laughs> um yeah but it, it made me think uh there's as like kind of crazy as the world's been over the last couple of years um I, you know while this kind of idea of like a the slow games um which is a term I'm, I'm borrowing from uh slow tv in in norway i think particularly tends to use it a lot where they'll broadcast like eight hours of a fireplace burning and I think they did that literally once and 20% of the of the population of the country watched it. Um, so <laughs> it, there's something very appealing about just sort of, you know, it also kind of fits in with like mindfulness and just slowing down and experiencing the world. And uh, while slow games are not necessarily new, um, you know, I feel like we have seen quite a few of them be successful recently. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, games like Unpacking and PC building simulator and house flipper uh, and then like kind of longer um, uh, sets like farming simulator and truck simulator, train sim world, mm-hmm. flight simulator, uh, and then kind of like the huge successes of Stardew Valley and Animal Crossing. Like these are all games that are not really centered around challenge. They're not, um, you know, there's not a lot of mastery going on. I I don't, you know, from the, the what we were just talking about, I'm not, accelerating like i'm not doing better than expected I, i'm just going through it and you know there's a couple of upgrades but it, it doesn't really change things too much um mm-hmm. but i still like it really really i i, I love it <laughs> um mm. and so i when i posted this topic in our our slack channel i think everyone piped in with some sort of a slow tv or slow game that they <laughs> Um, <laughs> we're really into you, and uh, I've, I've watched only one, to... one of those uh, movies. I, I watched this one uh, where it was essentially a ship in Norway just going from one city to the other city, eight hours long, and it went past one island in the movie, and I could see the cow moving. But the <laughs> that was like the exciting part. <laughs> yeah, but, I think uh, I think that's the a, that... that's the one that got, and maybe it's not that one, but I think like there's there was one of the one of the ship ones from like Norway yeah, slow yeah. TV that got like fifty percent of the population watching yeah. at some point, <clears throat> like simultaneously. And then, it's just and then like I crazy. Watched... Yeah, and then I watched the like this you know meta analysis of the slow movie because I was like why the hell am i addicted to this and the interesting point that was made is when you're watching this you kind of like create your own stories in your own head and then you kind of wait to see those stories play out because when the cow is moving you're like hmm is the cow going to move right or left or is he going to like you know eat some more grass right now or is he like you know going to a corner and you know do do <laughs> do his thing over there and then come back you know uh so you kind of like create these own stories and that like creates the anticipation to like continue watching them. And I wonder if that similar mindset, um, I mean, of course, in, in a in a more like Zen-like game, you have like more agency and stuff to probably, you know, <clears throat> control the story to some extent. But I wonder if there's a pinch of that thinking over here that kind of drives, drives engagement. Yeah, and I think, uh, Manny, you mentioned uh, coloring games too as as one of those yeah. types of of quote unquote games that have risen as in terms of popularity and 
you know, not, not only games, like the coloring books for, for adult adults and mandalas and all that has very like recent risen very much in uh, popularity. And I think that a lot of the reasons why that has been successful and gravitated for like people have gravitated towards that. Uh, I, I think it just applies very directly to games as well. Um, where is, you know, just reading a little bit of like the research that has been done on, you know, why mandalas specifically, or that type of like coloring is very relaxing to people. Um, there's like a, an article in an art therapy journal that um, they kind of put in, and it was like very light experiment where they uh, gave divided groups in, into three groups. One group was, they gave uh, a mandala, another group, they gave them like a kind of like a, just geometric figure like squares but it's like you know just a geometric figure like nothing too fancy and then just like free form draw and they all had kind of like same task of like and they did like survey of like anxiety before or after um and what they found was like free form was not did not reduce anxiety the other two did and kind of going a little bit into that is that you know it, it provides enough structure to get into like kind of like this repetitive motion type mindset it's complex enough that you need to focus your attention because you're not you know you're strategizing right when you're thinking about like coloring these things and like you know with the power washer like you're strategizing is like how am I going to you know go in this direction or this direction, right? Like you're making some light decisions that require your attention, mm-hmm. but it's not too complex, like freeform drawing that now you have to be like super creative and like make a lot of decisions, right? So it's like enough yeah. decision-making that in a, in a good structure way that, you know, you feel creative, but you're not like overly stressing on the creative side. And then the, the, and that's kind of like on the creative side of the, of the brain. And then on the uh, kind of other side of brain, like motor skills, right. It's just like doing some repetitive motion. And, you know, even if it's in games, mm-hmm. like you're just like, if you get into like one of these games, like might be like that, the tapping, like coloring or just like tapping or just clicking and like swiping, like you get into like these, these motions Um and kind of like those two things together, like you end up with like that meditative effect, which in mm. like such a stressful world <laughs> that we live in, it it feels like it's just like it's it just taps into a lot of, you know, key relaxate relaxation um needs that we have as like humans that it's just like sounds silly for these to be games, but it's just like, it feel it makes you feel good. Cause you're yeah. getting yeah. into feels, that state. Yeah. It, it, it feels almost like the a video game equivalent of knitting. Like just yeah, that, yeah, yeah. you know, very repetitive, <laughs> like kind of pay attention, but you know, um, a lot of people use knitting as just a way of sort of relaxing and focusing and, um, yeah, and even like you yeah, know, they might I, be doing something else, and they're like knitting, and it's like very relaxing because it's like very repetitive and like requires enough engagement. Uh, funny, funny story about knitting, or, or just interesting story. Um, 
one of the things at Camden TV, we, we are very, you know, focused on, on Twitch right now and the Twitch ecosystem mm. and, you know, it's popular there. And one of the things that uh, when I first found that there was like a big community of what they call makers, but within makers, like knitters that they stream mm. their knitting. Um, oh, okay. And, you know, they could, you know, they might be streaming for like, five, six hours of just like knitting and, you know, talking to, to their audience and kind of just like going through, you know, maybe I knit like this whole thing during my stream. And that Mm. was for me, it's like so interesting of like, it's both like very interesting to see someone do it as much as it is to do it. Um, Which goes back to like the slow TV uh, idea, right? It's just like, sometimes you don't even need to do like the, the the movement to get into like that send mode for like that, that activity of like almost like you can project yourself in into it or engage in some way. Yeah. The, uh, the other offshoot um, of uh, hyper casual games, this is also like one example I shared on our Slack chat, but um, ultra casual games also, I feel um, so that's that's like one subgenre of hyper casual that has also gained a pretty pretty big audience, and the games are uh, the game design is pretty parallel to you know what we're talking about over here, where it's basically it's basically like the hyper casual business model, but the core game does not have a loss state, so it results in a lot of like these zen like game experiences where you have to like paint a house or you have to, you know, sort some things or I, I don't know, maybe there's a knitting game also that I haven't come across, but, um, but yeah, it's, yeah. I just wanted to like bring up the example uh, just to kind of showcase that, you know, we're also not like talking about a niche over here. Uh, there is a pretty big audience that is actually on mobile, at least that is like playing these games, but also the examples that you brought up, Anthony, you know, like you know like farming um uh or truck simulator and stuff you know like those uh those are also like pretty pretty big games with you know sizable audiences um for themselves but yeah yeah i also don't know if there's really like a i'm pretty sure like there's a secret sauce to it right there's some balance that needs to achieve and that needs to be achieved between how meditative it is and how um how much of uncertainty there is in it uh because i mean one <clears throat> one example is of course um um Habi, one of habby's games uh called penguin isle i think which was an which was another idle game but uh, a key motivation for theming and you know game mechanics across it and progression was the whole zen like feeling of taking care of your penguins that are on this iceberg <clears throat> and um but yeah, that 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 wasn't really enough to kind of um, you know push the game to success. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, it's still the the idle game part of it overtook the Zen part of it, and the focus on the Zen was lost for the player, and it was more on the idle and and therefore you know maybe like balancing etc. was not really great over there. But um, all they almost like. It feels like one was like super certain about what you're gonna get, but the other one is like super uncertain, and then it was just clashing, you know, in that game. But uh, yeah, it doesn't work in all cases. But I guess there's like yeah, there's a balance to be achieved in these kinds of games. 
all right um <clears throat> so yeah i think i think we are at time um any last comments uh, on anything otherwise we can wrap up nope all right cool well uh yeah it was uh, great to have you guys and you know chat with both of you together <laughs> after you know uh after knowing about uh, you guys for such a long time but um but yeah i guess that's the end of the show um if uh, if you listener would like to continue the conversation uh, you can catch us on our discord check out our free newsletter navik digest the invite to the discord is in the newsletter so check it out uh, and yeah if you want some more uh, premium research on topics like this and more across blockchain and free to play games uh, check out navik pro on the website and and yeah next week is gamescom so I think we're going to be recording a live episode at Gamescom so there will be a round table episode going live next week hopefully uh but other than that Maria should be back in the next two weeks and uh, and yeah I guess we'll see you next week yeah.